The time is at hand. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. When we are successful, and we will be, we have a real chance at this new world order. One of the many spirits said to haunt the area. Unknown animal attack. We need a great reset. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen. From 659 feet up in the Appalachian Mountains, you're in dark places. My name is Jumbo Fugit. I'm starting week five of my working travel at the other store. I have like 25 more weeks to go. It's going to be a while. And I have a bit of an update on my Jeep from a couple weeks ago. I was talking about you know, all the gauges went down and it was like someone shut the motor off and I thought it was aliens. But it turns out it was my transmission blowing up. So I'm looking at anywhere around $3,000 to $6,000 getting it fixed. Yes. This week on the show, we're serving up some paranormal gumble. We have appearances from the Flatwoods Monster, La Llorona, Aliens, and the Devil himself. It's going to be a fun episode. This is Mr. Haunted, your In Dark Places news correspondent, with some breaking news. Arby's, we have the meat. An investigation is underway after a woman's body was found in the freezer of a new Iberia restaurant on Thursday, May 11th. May 11th, that happens to be Little Fish's birthday. Happy birthday, Little Fish. But investigators don't suspect foul play. An employee discovered the body of another employee Thursday evening. Officers with the new Iberia Police Department were called to an Arby's restaurant located on Admiral Doyle Drive around 6.30 p.m., according to Sergeant Dacia Hughes, a spokesperson for the department. The, sex, the station in Lafayette reported police said an employee found a female employee unresponsive in the freezer. It added the identity of the employee will not be released at this time. The case remains under investigation. Arby's restaurant released the following statement from uh, this representative named uh, Laurel Sprague. We are aware of the incident that took place at our franchise location in New Iberia, Louisiana. The franchisee is cooperating fully with local authorities as they conduct their investigation. Due to this being an active investigation, we defer any further comment to the police department. Well, apparently, Arby's does have the meats. Arby's, we have the meats. Thanks, Jimmy. And here's a story sent in by our friend Paul. Thanks, Paul. Bizarre Martian book spotted by NASA's Curiosity rover. Story by Harry Baker. NASA's Curiosity rover snapped an intriguing picture of a tiny Martian rock that looks surprisingly like a fossilized book on the surface of the red planet. A book. 
the rover captured the image of the peculiar book-like rock on April 15th, the 3,800th day of the Martian mission, using the Mars Hand Lens Imager, also known as the M-A-H-L-I <laughs> on the end of its robotic arm, according to NASA. The rock looks like two halves of an open book with a single page that has frozen halfway through being turned. The rock may look somewhat like a book, but it's much smaller. The fossilized page turner is actually just one inch across, according to NASA. Rocks with unusual shapes are common on Mars, a NASA representative said. The strangely shaped rocks are made from several minerals that were left behind by ancient water. These minerals would once have been buried beneath softer sediments, but billions of years of erosion by wind have blown away everything else, they added. In February 2022, Curiosity spotted a branched mineral flower that was around 0.4 inches wide. And on February 16th, the rover photographed rocks imprinted with tiny ripples, or waves, left behind from an ancient lake. Scientists have also seen larger scale shapes carved out by ancient water on the red planet, including a large rock formation that looks just like a teddy bear's face, and another that's a dead ringer for the frizzy-haired Muppet Beaker. Curiosity has also caught a few images that are more stunning than perplexing. On February 2nd, the rover captured the first clear images of sun rays on Mars, which occur when sunlight shines through gaps in the clouds during sunsets or sunrises when the sun is below the horizon. And now here is your Nicolas Cage Meltdown of the Week. You should not be wearing that hat. A robot should not be wearing my son's Toby's hat. Dad, it's fine. I don't even like the hat. I think you should go to your room. But, Dad... Do as you're told! Earlier today, our fearless leader, Junebug, was uh, sharing a story with me uh, called Satan's Footprints or something like that. And that reminded me of a case back in, I don't know, mid-90s or whatever, when I was, um, when we were meeting with uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren every week. And so usually to begin the class, they would go over the messages they got in, the phone messages that they got in over the week on, on people that are um, in need of help or have a question. And one particular person left a message and said that they um, it was uh, winter and they've been having stuff happen in their house anyway and they heard knockings at their front door around midnight and they were 
terrified to even look at the door because who's knocking on your door at midnight? And uh, they've had stuff happening anyway, so um, they were terrified. So they left a message with Ed and Lorraine, and we listened to the message. And um, so I don't even know what happened to that case, but I wanted to go on that case so bad just for the story because they said in the morning, they when I opened the front door, there was cloven footprints that led to their front door and then away from their front door and to a tree in their front yard. And they said it wasn't small footprints like a, you know, a raccoon or something like that. It was big cloven footprints like a pig. So anyways, I don't even remember know what happened to that case. You know, and then 20 years later, um, a cousin of mine told me she's having weird stuff happening in her house and would you like to investigate it? I honestly told her, I said, I don't want to, you know, spend time investigating your house and asking questions and drawing more attention to the thing. I said, uh, how about we do a, like a house blessing for you? And um, that way, the you know, don't worry about the investigation part. I believe you. So she starts telling me the story. And she's telling me about the cloven footprints in the snow. And I said, did you call Ed and Lorraine 20 years ago? <laughs> my front door just closed. Uh, about this? And she says, yes. I'm like, holy mackerels. That's the case I wanted to go on. So 20 years later, here I am. And I had her write up a little story that I still had saved somewhere. I just found it. Um, I had her write up some of the goings on in her house. And I'm going to read that for you right now. So these are um, these are some of the happenings from 1999 to 2013. I had two sightings. The first time was in 1999. I had some strange things happen in my house, but this is the first time I actually saw something. I would see small shadows darting around the house. I would hear footsteps running around the house that sounded like a small child when I didn't have any children yet. On more than one occasion, I heard what sounded like a small boy saying, Help me! That sounded always like it was coming from the basement. One evening in 1999, I was washing my hands in the kitchen, getting ready to go to bed. It was nighttime, and I caught a reflection in the window above the sink. There was a small boy standing behind me. He appeared to be about four years old. He was white with dark brown hair and was wearing a little dark colored suit with a hand-tied white bow tie. His face was expressionless, but looking up at me, I spun around quickly to look at him, and I saw him for an instant, and then he quickly disappeared. My ex, who lived with me at the time, said he saw the same small boy a couple times before this, and I described it the same way he saw it. I never saw the boy again until 2013. I still heard the occasional footsteps and voices all the while. Now, I had a two-year-old son, and he's, he's had trouble sleeping, so he was sleeping with me on the mattress on the floor. The mattress started to shake so bad one night that we both woke up. At the foot of the bed stood a lady with short blonde hair and blue eyes, Alongside her was what looked like the same boy I had seen previously, 
except his face was painted white and black in Halloween-type makeup. They both stood there just looking at me until the lady jumped onto my bed and came up to my face, and the only way I can describe it as she hissed in my face. I sat up and screamed, What do you want? And they both disappeared. Even though I was terrified, I still wonder who they are and what do they want. The voices, the footsteps, the shadows still continue to this day. And it all started with some footsteps. Satan in the Snow One cold February morning in 1855, a strange trail of footprints was found in the thick snow that covered South Devon. No one could tell what had caused them, and as Graham Fuller and Ian Knight explained, the villagers began to fear that they were the marks of the devil himself. Thanks, Graham and Ian. The weather in the winter of 1855 was very much on the minds of the Victorian public. In the Crimea, a British army was slowly dying of exposure. Its death throws meticulously chronicled in the Times and the illustrated weeklies. At home, the Thames was frozen at Kingston, and the adventurous were to be seen skating on the Serpentine. In the west of England, isolated villages were cut off by flurries of snow. Local bakers were unable to bring supplies to the stranded community of Lustley in Devon and in Torquay, hundreds were out of work due to the icy conditions. In February, the ice on the River X was so thick at one point that gas was laid on from the street and revelers cooked a substantial meal. Further west, the River Teen froze in several places and the sea wall of Tignmouth collapsed, taking with it a section of the railway. Let's see, there's the food supply issues again. They're trying to sabotage our food, destroying all the railways. Oh, oh yeah, this was 1855. Unwary travelers caught out overnight perished in the freezing temperatures. The night of Thursday, February 8th, must have seemed like any other night to the inhabitants of the towns and villages along the X estuary. There was a heavy fall of snow in the early part of the night, followed by rain, a bitter wind, and in the morning, frost. Yet, accustomed though they were to the peculiarities of nature at her worst, the morning of the ninth gave them something of a surprise, as the Times reported on February 16th. Considerable sensation has been evoked in the towns of Thompson, Limestone, Exmouth, Tigmouth and Dawlish, and the south of Devon. The consequence of the discovery of a vast number of foot-like tracks of a most strange and mysterious description. The superstitious go so far as to believe that they are the marks of Satan himself, and that great excitement has been produced among all classes, may be judged 
from the fact that the subject has been discanted on from the pulpit. <laughs> not want to do that voice anymore because it goes on for a while. <laughs> it appears that on Thursday night, there was a very heavy fall of snow in the neighborhood of Exeter in the south of Devon. On the following morning, the inhabitants of the above towns were surprised at discovering the tracks of some strange and mysterious animal, endowed with the power of ambiguity, as the footprints were seen in all kinds of inaccessible places, on the tops of houses and narrow walls, in gardens and courtyards, enclosed by high walls and palings, as well as in open fields. There was hardly a garden in Lipstone where the footprints were not observed. The track appeared more like that of a biped than a quadruped, and the steps were generally eight inches in advance of each other. Impressions of the feet closely resembled that of a donkey's shoe, and measured from an inch and a half to two and a half inches across. Here and there it appeared as if cloven, but in generality of the steps the shoe was continuous and from the snow in the center remaining entire, merely showing the outer crest. It must have been concave. The creature seems to have approached the doors of several houses and then have retreated, but no one has been able to discover the standing or resting point of the mysterious visitor. At present time, it remains a mystery, and many superstitious people in the above towns are actually afraid to go outside their doors after night. Certainly the appearance of the unidentified footprints overnight covering such a large area caused something of a stir. At Dawlish, where the tracks went right through the village, the local hunt set out, accompanied by villagers with guns and clubs to follow the tracks. Till at last, in a wood, the hounds came back baying and terrified. Rumor had it that many of the marks clearly indicated that the foot that made them was cloven. Other reports said it had claws. For the majority of the country folk, this evidence led to one inescapable conclusion. The sages of Lipstone pronounced the vestigia uresome to be decidedly satanic, and an Exmouth old woman has taken the occasion to remind us that Satan was to be unchained for a thousand years. The effect, according to GMM, a correspondent of the Illustrated London News, was that laborers, their wives and children, and old crones and trembling old men, to stir out after sunset or go out half a mile into lanes or byways on a call or message under the conviction that this was the devil's walk and none other, and that it was wicked to trifle with such a manifest proof of the great enemy's immediate presence. Fortunately, several observers on the spot were sufficiently scientific in their approach to leave detailed records of the phenomena. Writing from Newport House, Countess Wire, in the heart of the affected area, a Mr. D'Urban, grandson of the man who gave his name to Durban in South Africa, reported what he had seen. The marks, to all appearances, were the perfect impression of a donkey's hoof, the length four inches by 
two and three quarters inches, but instead of progressing as the animal would have done, feet right and left, it appeared that foot had followed foot in a single line, the distance from each tread being about eight inches, or rather more. This mysterious visitor generally only passed once down or across each garden or courtyard, and did so in nearly all the houses in many parts of several towns, also in the farms scattered about. This regular track passing, in some instances, over the hoofs of houses and hayricks and very high walls, without displacing the snow on either side or altering the distance between the feet, and passing on as if the wall had not been any impediment. The Reverend Gentleman G. M. Musgrave of Exmouth and H. T. Ellicombe of Celeste St. George spent some time and energy both following the footprints and corresponding with neighbors on the subject. Their descriptions of the track, which climbed over roofs under bushes eight inches from the ground through a six-inch drain pipe and finally stopped dead in the middle of a field outside of Exmouth, need not be doubted. My dog barked that night, and so did the dogs of my neighbor, where the marks were seen, commented Ellicombe significantly. Inevitably, the reports encouraged a welter and correspondence from the people convinced that they held the key to the mystery. It was variously suggested that the visitor was an otter, a crane, a swan, an escaped kangaroo, even a rat jumping with all fours together, and that the strange shape of the prince was due to atmospheric conditions. Richard Owen, a leading naturalist of the day, studied some drawings made by Ellicombe and pronounced the marks to be the tracks of a badger. Others, mindful that the trail passed over rooftops and appeared on high window sills, believed a bird was responsible. The hoof-shaped impression caused by ice on its toes, though more feasible than most, since large flocks of birds were known to have been sheltering in the estuary. This explanation still failed to convince everyone. Durban had recently passed a five-month winter in the backwoods of Canada and has much experience in tracking wild animals and birds upon the snow and can safely say he has never seen a more clearly defined track or one that appeared to be less altered by atmospheric conditions than the one in question. No known animal could have traversed this extent of the country in one night besides having to cross estuary of the sea two miles broad neither does any known animal walk in a line of single footsteps not even a man no bird's foot leaves the impression of a hoof so is it possible that after over 150 years to discover just what did visit south devon that winter's night in 1855 causing such a superstitious folly. By carefully sifting contemporary accounts, it is at least possible to obtain a better picture of the nature of the mystery. First, though D'Urban later became a respected antiquary, noted for his careful reporting, he was only 19 in 1855, and his writings may have been swayed by over-enthusiasm and hearsay. There is no evidence, certainly, to support his claim 
that the trail started as far west as Totnes and only little to verify his presence in Turquay. Most independent accounts suggest that it started west of Tigmouth, passed through Dwalish, traveled northwards on the west side of X estuary, and then southward on the east side, ending outside Exmouth, a much shorter distance than has sometimes been claimed. Only at its mouth is the X two miles wide, and the reports indicate that the mysterious visitor may have walked across the frozen river as far up as Topsham, where it narrows to a few hundred yards. The probability that it passed on the north side of the Tyne estuary and on either side of the X, as if the creature were trying to avoid crossing water, discredits rather outlandish sea monster theories that has been flavored by some. Miss Theo Brown, a lecturer at Exeter University and recorder of folklore for the Devonshire Association, has studied the case and collected oral traditions relating to it, and believes that some of the marks can be eliminated. At Topsham, the tracks were not seen until Valentine's Day, several days after their appearance elsewhere, suggesting that not all the prints appeared simultaneously, as some described. There are slight differences, too between the known drawings of the tracks, so maybe they did not share a common origin. Some so clearly resembled a donkey's shoe that they may have been just that, mistaken for something more mysterious in an uproar. Others looked, said Elicon, as if the snow had been braided with a hot iron or some form of such a shoe had been cut out with a knife to the ground and may have been the work of practical jokers. Certain of the affected parishes were at the time dallying with Pusseyism, a neo-Catholic revival suspected of being rather too Roman, and the fact that the prince went up to the church door in several of these parishes hints at a human agency seeking to point the finger. Certainly one local newspaper referred to a belief that the visitation was a warning to the Pusiats. Nevertheless, it is not possible to explain away the heart of the mystery. There were some thousands of these marks, extending from many miles of either side of the X and the Clist. Even if one discounts a number for the reasons mentioned, the vast majority occurred overnight, and were significantly strange to though the locals who, like all country folk, would have known a badger track from that of a rat or a swan into a state of panic. The so-called Great Devon Mystery remains exactly that. It is not, however, the only case of mysterious prints in the snow. The Western Times reported that a similar occurrence took place here about five years ago. That is, in about 1850. Subsequent observers had been quick to point out that in May of 1840, while on an exploratory trip to the Antarctic, Captain Sir James Clark Ross stopped off at the uninhabited, largely frozen Kerguelen Island and found in the snow unidentified traces of the singular footprints of a pony being three inches in length and two and a half inches in breadth. 
having a small deeper impression in either side and shaped like a horseshoe. In Scotland in 1840, similar tracks were reported among mountains where Glenarchy, Glinton, and Glenarchy are contiguous. One correspondent in the wake of the Devon incident reported that on the Peshawar Gora or Sand Hill, a small elevation on the border of Galicia, such marks were to be seen in the snow every year and are attributed by the local inhabitants to supernatural influences. Footprints left by an apparently one-legged, cloven-footed beast in parts of Inverness at the time as the devil's hoof marks appeared in Devon excited some local speculation but were later explained away by a passing naturalist as tracks of a hare or polecat. In 1945, science fiction writer Eric Frank Russell, while serving with the Allied Army during the Ardennes campaign, reported seeing similar impressions in the snow. The local people were at a loss to explain them. Unfortunately, the scarcity of film prevented Russell from making a permanent record. The question remains, just what was it that can cover large areas of snowbound countryside in a short space of time, undeterred by obstacles, running in a fast, menacing step and leaving a hoof-shaped footprint. The Girl in the Bathroom In Japan Schools? I want to say, in Japan, the hand can be used like a knife. And do the Ginsu commercial. Maybe later. So anyways, in Japan, the schools contain an infernal secret. If you go into the girls' bathroom on the third floor of the building and walk to the third stall, you might find her. You have to knock three times and call her name. When you open the stall do door... A little girl in a red skirt will be there. The little girl with the bob haircut is Hanako-san. She wants friends to play with, maybe. Or perhaps she wants you to, to drag you to hell. Depending on which part of Japan you live in, she may have a bloody hand and grab you, or be a lizard that devours you. Although I am getting scared just thinking about her right now. Hanako-san has been, become a fixture of Japanese urban folklore over the last 70 years. The most popular origin story for the tale holds that during World War II, a schoolgirl was using the bathroom when a bomb fell on top of the building. The school collapsed on top of little Hanako-san, who had been trapped there ever since. But Hanako isn't the only schoolgirl who haunts Japan's school's bathrooms. Kashima Riko, another young girl, was said to have been cut in half by a train. Now her disfigured spirit inhabits bathrooms, asking children who enters the stalls where her legs are. The legend goes that if Kashima Riko is not satisfied with the answer, she will rip your legs off. Holy mackerels.
that Flatwoods Monster is described as an alien creature with glowing eyes, metallic garb, and a penchant for lurking in the shadows. It has inspired countless tales and investigations. The most famous sighting of the Flatwoods Monster took place on September 12, 1952 in Braxton County, West Virginia. A group of boys, Edward May, Freddie May, Neil Nunley, and Tommy Heyer, was playing football outside when their eyes were drawn to a fiery streak in the sky. Accompanied by Edward and Freddie's mother, Kathleen May, and a National Guardsman, Eugene Lemon, they decided to investigate. As they advanced on Fisher's farm, they were confronted by a pulsing red light, and then a creature measuring at least ten feet tall, with a blood-red, heart-shaped face, piercing glowing eyes, and a bizarre hood-like structure encircling its grotesque visage. His body was shrouded in a dark metallic exoskeleton with spindly clawed arms outreached menacingly. The creature hissed, glided toward the group, and they ran away. The encounter was reported to authorities who searched the area that night but found nothing. Braxton County has always been a sleepy, sparsely populated part of West Virginia with roughly 30 people per square mile. While there are a few parks and lakes, it has never been a tourist destination. But the Flatwoods Monster has helped change that. Now cryptozoologists and UFO enthusiasts travel to the area for the express purpose to hunt for the old bright-eyed monster and learn about the local folklore. There are even five ten-foot-tall monster-themed chairs erected throughout the county. Tourists are encouraged to find and photograph them for an otherworldly prize. For some reason I've never been up there. I need to check that out. And here's an old newspaper article about the Flatwoods Monster. And it doesn't have a date, but it looks old. Braxton County residents faint, become ill after running with weird 10-foot monster. Several Braxton County residents Saturday reported seeing a 10-foot Frankenstein-like monster in the hills above Flatwoods. They said they saw the monster Friday night when they climbed a wooded hill to investigate reports that a flying saucer had landed. This is Kathleen May, a Flatwoods resident, said that she and six boys, including a 17-year-old member of the National Guard, started to search for the bright object which her two small sons said they had seen come down. However, state police laughed the reports off as hysteria. They said the so-called monster had grown from 7 to 11 feet in 24 hours. The National Guard member, Lemon, was leading the group when he said he saw what appeared to be a pair of bright eyes in a tree. At first he thought it was an opossum or a raccoon, but when he shone his flashlight on it, he said he saw a ten-foot monster with a blood-red face and a green body that seemed to glow. Mrs. May said Lemon let out a terrified scream and fell over backward. She said the monster started toward them with a bounding motion. All of the party agreed that there was an overpowering smell that burned the nostrils and made them sick. Several of the party fainted and vomited for several hours after returning to the town. 
A Lee Stewart, co-publisher of the Braxton County Democrat, said he and several men armed with shotguns returned with Lemon about a half hour to an hour later and reported a sickening odor still present. He said there was also a slight heat wave in the air. Those people were the most scared people I have ever seen, Stewart said. People don't make up that kind of story that quickly. Both Mrs. May and Lemon described the thing as having the shape of a man, blood red face, bright green body, protruding eyes, and head extended forward and appeared to give off an eerie light. They said it had a black shield affair to the shape of an ace of spades behind it and wore what looked like a pleated metallic shirt. It looked worse than Frankenstein, said Mrs. May. In Japan, the hand can be used like a knife. But this method doesn't work with a tomato. That's why we use the Ginsu. It's a knife that no kitchen should be without. The Ginsu can cut a slice of bread so thin you can almost see through it. It cuts meat better than an electric knife and goes through frozen food as though it were melted butter. The Ginsu is so sharp it can cut through a tin can and still slice a tomato like this. It can chop wood and still remain razor sharp. What's more, it's a knife that will last forever. How much would you pay for a knife like this? Before you answer, listen. It even comes with a matching fork to make carving a pleasure. Wait, there's much, much more. We also want you to have this six-in-one kitchen tool. It peels and slivers carrots, peels potatoes, and slices paper-thin potato chips. This amazing little knife even grates carrots, grates cheese, and makes beautiful decorative vegetables. How much would you pay for all these items? Well, we'll even give you this set of six precision steak knives. The handles even match the Ginsu. And to make the offer completely irresistible, you'll get this unique spiral slicer. Down and down, around and around, and you'll have a beautiful garnish for your dinner table. Now how much would you pay? You get the Ginsu knife, the matching carving fork, the versatile six-in-one kitchen tool, a set of six steak knives, and the spiral slicer. You get them all, guaranteed in writing for 50 years, for only $9.95. It's the most incredible knife offer ever. Here's how to order. Call toll-free 1-800-835-2246 or save COD charges by sending $9.95 to Ginsu, Box 6688, Chicago. You get the Ginsu knife, matching carving fork, six-in-one kitchen tools, six steak knives, and spiral slicer. This is the original Ginsu, the only knife offer with a 50-year guarantee. Don't accept imitations. Order now. Ghost of Oxford Milford Road. When Brad Culp was a student at Miami University in Ohio, there was a rumor that the town was one of the most haunted places in America. When Culp started an on-campus magazine, he couldn't wait to write about several of the area's most famous phantoms. Not long after his story published, though, he kept finding himself thinking about one ghost in particular. The ghost of Oxford Milford Road. As the story goes, many decades ago, probably sometime in the 1940s, 
There was a young man courting a young woman in a rural part of town. Because the woman's parents didn't approve of the match, each night he visited under the cover of darkness. After her parents went to bed, the young woman would sneak out of her farmhouse and flash the lights of her parents' car three times. Then her young suitor would ride his motorcycle down the road. One night, he took the turn right before her house a little too sharp. The motorcycle went one way, he went the other. His injuries were so severe that he did not survive. Rumor has it, however, that his love-struck ghost still haunts this stretch of Milford Road. Curious, Culp, his girlfriend and a friend, decided to head out there one night to see if they could verify the tale. His girlfriend was worried that she uh, would completely freak out. She believes more in that stuff than I do, Culp said, but he was mostly concerned that his suspicions that none of this was actually true would be confirmed. On this particular night, as Culp passed the abandoned farm, an idea came to him and he pitched it to his girlfriend. Though reluctant, she relented and Culp turned a short way into the farmhouse driveway. He killed the engine and flashed his lights three times. No joke, there was a single headlight that appeared three quarters of a mile down the road, he says. You saw it start to come, going pretty slow. It kept coming and coming. My wife was freaking out. It was coming closer and closer. As a collision seemed imminent, Culp turned off his car's lights. He expected to see a kid on a bike, bailing out from his prank now that he'd been caught. But there's nothing there. The light is just gone, he says. They got out of the car. They walked around trying to figure out what it was they could have seen. To this day, we still talk about it. I saw something I cannot explain, he says. If you get him and his wife around a campfire, they'll swear up and down that the story is true. And if you're ever in Oxford, Ohio, consider parking for just a few minutes on Oxford Milford Road at night to test your own nerve. about the Flatwoods Monster, there's another one from West Virginia. Lake Shawnee's Abandoned Amusement Park. There's something unnatural about this Mercer County attraction. A Native American burial ground, violent deaths, freak accidents. Who knew a simple amusement park could have such a dark past? Lake Shawnee Amusement Park was crippled long before local entrepreneur Conley Snitto broke ground for the circular swing. At least, that's what most locals think. Ask anyone familiar with the area, and they'll tell you no one should have turned the grassy field into a carnival. But most things seem obvious in retrospect. When Snitto purchased the property during the 1920s, he had no idea it had witnessed decades of bloody unrest. Lake Shawnee's restless past originates in the 18th century. During the late 1700s, Mitchell Clay brought his young family out west. 
They established an 800-acre farm and raised 14 children. Tragedy struck the Clays in 1783. A Native American tribe slew two of the children while Mitchell was out hunting. They kidnapped one of the boys, Ezekiel, only to burn him at the stake. Clay retaliated. With the help of other settlers, he tracked down several Native Americans and killed them. The scarred homestead was never the same. The Clay property didn't attract much notice until the 1920s. That's when Snowdo appeared. Snidow? Snowdo? I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. I'm going to say Snidow. That sounds good. And that's when Snidow appeared with his rides and attractions. Circular swings, a water slide, a dance hall, a speakeasy. He also added a pond and a swimming hole, complete with canoes. At some point, things started to go wrong. Lake Shawnee fans know the facts intimately. A little girl died on the swings and a boy drowned in the pond. All told, roughly six visitors died during the amusement park's brief history. In 1966, the attraction was abandoned. The cheerful turquoise red and green rides slowly faded and flaked. Before too long, their rusty skeletons surrendered to the restless undergrowth. After 20 years, another businessman approached Lake Shawnee. Gaylord White thought the sleepy meadows seemed ideal for future neighborhoods, but as construction crews tore into grass and soil, they unearthed bones and Native American artifacts. It turned out the amusement park sat atop an ancient burial ground, and most of the skeletons belonged to children. Archaeologists believed the remains had been there long before settlers moved west. Was the Clay family cursed too? The White family decided not to challenge fate. Instead of developing community lots, they left the burial ground and rides intact. That means Lake Shawnee will continue to stand as a true Mercer County highlight. But don't just take our word for it. The abandoned amusement park has attracted ghost hunters and paranormal experts for years. In fact, Lake Shawnee ranks as one of the Travel Channel's most terrifying places in America. ABC goes even further. Their experts declared the property one of the ten most haunted places in the world. Visitors have heard footsteps, mysterious chants, and children. Sometimes one of the swings will move on its own. At one point, someone got locked in a shabby ticket booth, even though the doors don't lock. So, is Lake Shawnee really haunted? Decide for yourself. Although the amusement park is private property, there are regular paranormal tours throughout the year. The owners can usually make a private arrangement for you too. Just call them before heading out for a visit. Doug Avril grew up as one of eight boys on his parents' sprawling dude ranch, the Flathead Lake Lodge in rural Montana. As a teen, the Avril boys ran wild. We rode around as a little gang of cowboys, he remembers. They'd saddle up and head, up, head off to check cattle, 
on the three giant tracts of land the family managed, which formed a triangle around some of the state's most remote rangelands. One summer in the 60s, the brothers came across a ghastly sight. There, on the ground, were three dead cows. Dead, 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 neatly arranged in a circle. No obvious wounds were visible, but their reproductive organs had been removed. But there was never any blood. It was almost surgical. He remembers. During this decade, America was obsessed with aliens, and write-ups in the local newspapers posited that perhaps this was the work of extraterrestrials. People mused that aliens had taken the reproductive organs for testing. But one day, Avril and his friends came across a lance in the path. Attached to it was a cryptic note with a threatening message. That's when we thought, it's got to be people doing this, he says. Then things got really strange. Over the next few days, a series of odd events unfolded. First, the brothers stopped in at a local bar to grab a hamburger, leaving their horses in back of a stock truck. The horses were packed in tightly, and the Avrils were only gone for a few minutes. When they came back, the horse packed in the middle of the truck was mysteriously out, with no signs of a struggle. We had no idea how they possibly could have gotten that horse unloaded without unloading all the others, he says. The next day, a new wrangler on the ranch, ranch fell off his horse and was badly injured. They'd all been riding together, but not a single other member of the crew saw the accident. It was the weirdest thing, Avril says. The man's injuries were so severe that he was left permanently disabled. Finally, the last terrible thing happened. An old camp cook drove out to meet the brothers and ride for the day. But when he arrived, the tailgate on his stock truck had somehow gone missing, even though it had been there when he'd loaded up. His horse, Betsy, had fallen out of the truck and had been dragged behind the vehicle for God knows how long. They had to put her down on the spot. To be honest, it just killed him to see what happened to Betsy. We probably should have put him down too, remembers Avril. Those three events were just boom, boom, boom. Three things in a row that were so weird all tied together because they were right after we saw that spear, he remembers. Three things, like the three dead cows left in a circle. Avril used to tell the stories from that summer around the campfire quite a lot. But over the years, he's gotten new stories, and so they've been shifted out of rotation. Besides, they're awfully grim. But he recently got a call about a downed bull, a buffalo. Buff, buff, buffalo, tatanka. It was out in one of the most remote parts of the ranch. A neighbor had seen a pack of 16 wolves, and normally wolves don't bother buffalo. But 16 of them? I thought, well, maybe. He went to investigate. There, lying in a snow-covered field, was the bull. But there was no bullet holes or teeth marks or gashes on its corpse. Even stranger, scavenging animals and birds hadn't touched it. Not even the buzzards, which is really unusual, he says. One other thing was amiss. Its reproductive organs were gone. 
and there wasn't a single footprint in the snow around it or anywhere along the mile-long walk into the ranch from the nearest road. Ask Avril whether he thinks he's dealing with aliens or humans, and he'll tell you he's pretty sure it's humans. But I'd rather it be aliens, he adds. After that summer, back in the 60s, seeing what humans were capable of, he'd pick aliens any day. Mystery UFO Attack on Air Force Base Left Guards Screaming and Babbling by Charlie Brady Thanks, Charlie. A U.S. Air Force captain has recalled a terrifying moment in which his nuclear base came under attack from a UFO. He described how guards were left frightened, screaming and babbling by the bizarre sighting which has been covered up for more than 50 years. Robert Salas a retired U.S. Air Force captain, was heading up a Maelstrom base in Montana back in 1967. He and his colleagues saw eight orange-colored lights over the base, which was holding ten nuclear missiles. Mr. Salas described how guards dashed for safety as an oval-shaped craft disarmed the nukes. In National Geographic's new series, UFOs Investigating the Unknown, to be released this week, Mr. Salas told the show, I kind of dismissed it. I even said, you mean like UFOs? About five minutes later, he called back, screaming. When I hung up the phone, I thought we were under attack. We could see the lights going from green to red all across the board, meaning the missiles were inoperable, despite the fact that a large part of the U.S. nuclear capability was wiped out during the incident. It was never investigated by authorities. The staff present at the time also had to sign documents swearing them to secrecy. Three years after the incident, the U.S. Air Force stopped its UFO investigation, saying no more reported sightings had ever posed a threat. Mr. Salas added, That was certainly a lie. The subject of UFOs has been a big talking point in the States recently. Earlier this year, the Senate Armed Services Committee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities discussed recent sightings of UFOs, including one in the Middle East. Footage shown during the hearing saw a strange orb-shaped object fly past a U.S. military aircraft. Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick, who heads the agency, talked lawnmakers through video footage of a UFO sighting over the Middle East and said, this is essentially all the data we have at this event. It's going to be virtually impossible to fully identify that just based on video. And that is considered an unresolved case. After the hearing, Republican Senator Party Marco Rubio and Democrat Mark Warner wrote a five-point letter to the Department of Defense in Washington demanding that the process for witnesses to come forward be made easier. They said, To date we have seen no efforts to communicate the existence of secure process to the public. We request that you provide us an update on that plan to publicize the secure process for witnesses to come forward. Rubio also told Fox, 
What's worse, our government spent too many years ignoring or downplaying the threat. Thankfully, that is beginning to change. But, as we saw earlier this year, the defense and intelligence communities are still struggling. Mr. Rubio was referring to the recent incident when the U.S. shot down a spy balloon. He continued, Senior Pentagon leaders said publicly that the two UFOs were almost certainly not balloons, but Congress has not been provided the rationale or censored data to support this unprecedented action. In this instance, we shot down multiple UFOs, and it's not clear to this day we know with confidence what they were. We stood up at the AARO office to address just such an instance to rapidly aggregate and analyze the data and apply scientific process. We need the Biden administration to fully empower the AARO office and comply with the guidance set out in FY23 NDAA. That stands for the Fiscal Year 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, which includes clauses about establishing secure pathways for witnesses and whistleblowers to come forward with their stories. The retired Navy senior chief said that what the senators are asking for is likely what I would need to submit. Her name was Maria. She lived in Mexico. She had long, dark hair and a covetous heart. The man she loved would not have her. So she took her children in a fit of rage, took them down to the river, and drowned them one by one. When the man she loved spurned her again, she realized what she'd done. She took herself to the water and threw herself in to subject herself to the same fate as her children. But heaven would not have Maria, and she was condemned to wander the world in perpetual grief. She is La Llorona, the Wailing Woman. The people who have seen her said they can see her walking, soaking wet, wearing all white. And she can be heard crying out for her little ones that she killed. Oh, my children! She weeps. Some say that she snatches other young children as she walks, mistaking them for her own young children she knew. Children along the Mexican border grew up with her story, which traces itself to stories about several different female spirits of the Aztec Empire. One of the earliest memories of her, says Terry Martinez, who grew up in Texas, um, in the Rio Grande Valley. He said at elementary school, he was in the girl's bathroom. I don't know what he's doing in there. Oh, it was a girl. <laughs> she and the other young children would try to summon La Llorona in a bathroom mirror. The lights had to be out, Martinez said. The door had to be closed. They'd splash water on the mirror and say her name three times. La Llorona, La Llorona, La Llorona. It was just seeing who could stand being in the dark room and seeing how long we could stand there waiting for her to come out of the sink. It usually ended with a bunch of little girls screaming and running out of the bathroom. Mm -hmm.
Very scary. The Old Hag Triangle by Tom Sleeman. Thanks, Tom. At first, 63-year-old Hayeswall housewife Mary thought it was just a nightmare. She went to bed at her home on Mirror Lane, Hayeswall, on the night of May 14, 2013, at 11.20 p.m., while her husband Mike was watching the TV downstairs, and Mary soon fell fast asleep. She'd done a bit of gardening earlier in the evening, and that, along with the usual chores of shopping, cooking, and cleaning, had ensured that she'd have no trouble dropping off tonight. But at 1 a.m., Mary awoke. And not only did she discover she couldn't move an inch, she realized something, some presence, which she could only describe as evil, was in the room with her. She could hear the television set downstairs and realized Mike was still up. And then Mary felt the bed jolt as someone got on it. She felt the weight of someone on her body and a face that gave her a terrible fright swum into view. It was the wizened face of an old woman with a smiling mouth of crooked, discolored, sharp-looking teeth, and she seemed to have on a hood. Her eyes were red and bulged, and she whispered something Mary could not make out, and the Heswall housewife's heart started to pound as she felt a wave of fear wash over her. The unearthly old woman's mouth inched nearer, and Mary could smell the rancid breath. Mary then heard her husband's footsteps outside on the stairs. He was coming up to bed, she thought, and she saw the old woman's head turn right around, so it faced the door. But Mike didn't come in. He went to the toilet, and then, with a rapid twist of the neck, the woman faced Mary again and kissed her. Mary somehow managed to let out a scream, and the old woman jumped off the bed and vanished into the shadows. Mike came up the stairs, all out of breath, and switched on the bedroom light. When Mary sobbed and told him about what happened, Mike predictably told her that she'd had a nightmare and mentioned the pizza he and Mary had eaten earlier as being the cause. They always say that it's like something you ate and caused you to have a nightmare. I like food, and I've never had a nightmare like that, so I don't know. Mary said that the woman on the bed had been real and had somehow paralyzed her, so she could do heaven knows what to her. Mike got into bed with Mary ten minutes later, and there were no further visits from the hooded hag. What Mary didn't know was that a bedroom intruder matching the exact description of that emaciated intruder who had visited her would also pay a call at two other rural addresses that very same night. Over in Spittle, a 22-year-old student named Carrie had been sleeping soundly in the bedroom of her flat in Lancelin Court off Bolton Road when something had awakened her around midnight. Carrie thought it was her boyfriend, Alex, at first, but he was still over in Liverpool playing with his band and was not expected to be home until around one that morning. Carrie was on her way back when she opened her eyes, and the only light in the room was coming from a vintage lava lamp. By the light of that lamp, Carrie beheld a waking nightmare. A woman in a black hooded robe 
was on top of her, sitting on her chest with her feet on each side of Carney's head. And the face of the stranger looked heavily wrinkled and shriveled. And as she smiled, the woman showed a set of pointed yellow teeth, some of them broken, but some of them were fangs. The eyes of the entity then suddenly burnt bright red, like a light being switched on. Carrie could not move to defend herself, as the figure, despite his awkward posture, somehow managed to bend forward, so it could kiss Carney's face. As in Mary's encounter in his wall, the breath of the hag-like woman gave off an awful, pugent smell that Carrie found nauseating. So petty, the woman whispered, and the kissing went on for some time until Carrie's mobile started to ring. It was Alex, calling her from the club where he had just been performing with his band. Carrie couldn't move to answer the call, but after managing to close her eyes, regained the power of movement and hit the face of the hooded visitant with the back of her hand. She heard the thing cry out as it fell sideways off the bed. Carrie got up and switched on the bedroom light and looked to the side of the bed and saw not a trace of the nocturnal assailant. I later discovered that the old hag had made a third visit that night to a semi in Prenton just before 3 a.m. A 37-year-old man named Stephen was awakened in his bed at his home in Close. He thought he had heard a voice in the darkened bedroom. He dismissed the noise as a sound made by the neighbor's quarter-line palm trees as the wind whispered through them. But then Stephen clearly heard his name being spoken in the bedroom, and at that point he realized someone was laying next to him in the bed. Stephen had been divorced for a year and was not seeing anyone, so he was obviously baffled as to whom this person was. He turned to his left and came face to face with the almost skeletal face of a woman with long white hair and huge reddish eyes. Upon looking into those ghastly eyes, Stephen felt paralyzed and the intruder lunged at him and started to kiss him and he felt as if she was sucking the air out of his lungs. Stephen felt he was so weak his heart was going to stop, and resorted to reciting the Lord's Prayer in his mind. This was odd because Stephen had long classified himself as an atheist. As soon as he started to pray, the figure seemed to melt away into the darkness. When I looked at the geographical sites of these three cases, I noticed that they joined up to form a perfect isosceles triangle with two legs equal to 3.17 miles. I had heard a long time ago of the site's old hag attacks happening in defined geometric shapes, but why this is so and just what the hag is remains a mystery. That's about all the show this week. I hope you liked it. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Art Bell. And thank you for listening. We'll see you again right here next week. God bless.